0: Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. In this episode, you will be listening to a lecture by Dr. Jalmar Falk on the topic Catacontism Karl Schmidt and the Politics of Eschaton. Falk is a researcher at the Department of Literature, History of Ideas and Religion at Gothenburg University. And the lecture was given at the Foucauldian seminar at the end of December. A special thank you is therefore due to the Foucauldian seminar for hosting this very interesting lecture on political theology and eschatology, as well as to Dr. al Falk for allowing religion and theology to podcast the lecture. Thank you for the for the invitation. It's uh, very flattering to be be um, invited to talk about this uh, subject, which is of course something that I've been dealing with for a while. Um, a bit, um, how should I put it? It's a bit um, challenging to to present something on Schmidt for a Foucauldian, a seminar dedicated to Foucault, because I. I once had the feeling that I I got something about Foucault or that I understood Foucault um I'm not really sure that I could say that that's the fa- that's a fact anymore um, but uh, after working with Schmidt for about 10 years or so uh, Foucault has for me sort of drifted into the background somehow so um but uh, one thought I had this morning is, what would Jürgen Habermas say? Uh, I mean, uh, to him, perhaps the meeting between uh, Schmitt and Foucault would be all too too uh, obvious. Uh, whereas if you look closer at at least Foucault's writing, um, you find that, that uh, well, the sort of of philosophy that that Schmitt represents is is undermined by various other, um, w- w- the attempt to think politics in a r- radically different way, uh, I would say. Um, one is reminded of the classic quote that, that Foucault, uh, 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 what, what? I- in, um, in one of his interviews he says something along the line, what we need is a political philosophy that isn't directed around the problem of sovereignty. We need to cut off the king's head, and in political theory, this is still to be done. And I don't think you can get very much further from Schmitt than that. Like, that we need a theory of the political that isn't directed around sovereignty. Well, Schmitt's theory obviously is directed exactly around that. The problems there. Um, and also, we can, uh, as, as um, hard uh, Foucault. Uh, mentions Schmitt during a lecture, and if I remember this correctly, he says something about Schmitt's essentialist definition of the political. There we run up against another sort of problem, because that's not a very good description of what Schmitt says about the political at all. The whole point for Schmitt, and this is obvious from the concept of the political, is that the political has no essence. It relates to a relation. Uh, The intensity of a relation, rather, uh, the distinction between friend and enemy. This is one of Schmitt's most famous quotes and points. Um, which, uh, so to, to Schmitt, the, the problem of sovereignty in modernity relates to the fact that you can't, cannot any longer uh, attribute the political to a specific sphere erected around sovereignty. And this is a problem since he wants to uphold sovereignty as a political fact. Uh, I will get into this more during the lecture, but let me say something uh, about the. Well, I I can say something more about. I think that um, this, uh, of course, dismissal of Schmidt in this context um, uh, has something to do with with, of course, his view of the technologies of power and and his conception of of. Um, political power as relating to an immanent order of society and that sort of of, um, thinking, um, which, of course, you all who are involved in studying Foucault would know. Um, But there is, of course, since since Schmidt um, sees um, the changing features of Political of the political in in modernity um, towards this sort of uh, well what Foucault would call technologies of power as a central problem that is something that animates him as well so um, there is something that connects them there even if it, even if they take on very different um, attitudes towards this problem um, you could say that that Foucault would bring would like to bring on some sort of thought that would uh, be able to better um, answer to the problems that, or, or rather, investigate this this as an intellectual problem and and find these sort of new technologies of power and how they work. Schmidt would emphasize and, and perhaps also see something emancipatory in this shift from sovereignty towards towards. Uh, pluralism of, um, of uh, power uh, relationships spread out through society. Schmidt definitely sees this as a problem and not only because he doesn't like the idea of emancipation at all <laughs> so to speak, uh, but also because he he fears this dispersal of power into society as, as the uh, spreading of social conflict within the social body or something like that. Uh, I mean we don't have Schmitt's comment on on Foucault. Uh, I I know from reading Walter Saiter, who's a German um, sociologist, among other things. I think that uh, Saiter sent Schmitt his dissertation, which deals heavily, which draws heavily on Lacan, and Schmitt answered that he hadn't read Lacan, but he understood that you had to read Lacan to be able to read Saiter, which I think is a subtle dis. Like, basically, you have to read the psychiatrist to understand this manuscript. Um, but anyway, moving on. I think there's something connecting the, both of these thinkers in their radical interpretations of the inherent relationship between politics and metaphysics, which will feature much very prominently in this talk. Um, their, their shared interest in the epistemic politics of law and the relationship between power and knowledge, or the power-knowledge thing that is so very Foucauldian. Um, even if they are have very different temperaments, uh, I think there are, are definitely issues here. So I I I guess what I'm trying to say is that I understand why you're interested in Schmidt. Um, but I wouldn't recommend him instead of Foucault. But perhaps he says something that puts Foucault in an interesting perspective. Now Um, As for the title, I'm hoping that these Greek concepts will be explained, uh, and we can, you're welcome to ask questions, of course, but I can also explain them more um, extensively after the lecture, if if, uh, you have any further questions. Uh, So basically treat these concepts as some sort of problem to be discussed during the lecture, and not, not... like something where we start off. Uh, also, the image here is a rather—it's a rather uh, contingent choice. Uh, uh, I found this image uh, some years ago when I googled image, used Google Image and searched for the Katecon. This is one of the first things that show up, and this is from a Russian English language think tank, quite right wing. Uh, who used this image. It's from Italy, actually. Somewhere in the north, I have forgotten the town now, but it's it's a very old mosaic from from a local cathedral. Uh, And, uh, well, it deals with two angels fighting off demons, so I guess it's appropriate both as a sort of a conception of, uh, both as an image of what Schmidt thinks about when he talks about the catechon and, and the eschatological aspects of the political uh, but also how this sort of tradition is being actualized now and speaking of actualization can move on to this image um, which i guess you can see what word i want to focus on the apocalypse um, it might be a slow apocalypse, but it, it cre- clearly hasn't come around. The, the, fin- the final end of it, so to speak, hasn't yet come around. Uh, but it's an interesting choice of word in relation to this, to, to the theme of this lecture the eschaton, the eschatological, and the end of uh, all things. Uh, and I'd say that we are witnessing a generalized feeling of, of apocalyptic politics, or an apocalyptic experience of politics. Now we could discuss how long we should look for, how, how, for how long this has been a central feature of, of Western politics, and who is responsible for, for that fact, and to what extent it's um, sort of a uh, reasonable response to actual circumstances but but this kind of rhetoric is clearly visible in a lot of spheres in society so um it's also interesting to note and i think i I will return to this quote further on in the lecture, but I think it's um safe to say that that you w- you'd be surprised i mean um like Schmidt is associated with most. Things that that Hillary Clinton opposes, I think, is the great anti-liberal of the 20th century. One of them, at least, and uh, and at least a theorist-wise. Um, but there is something, and I I, I want to claim that there is something here with the perspective on politics and uh, being the last thing standing between you and the apocalypse that unites Schmidt and. And um, Hillary Clinton. And I'll try to illustrate why I think this and and how this might present some sort of problem or nuance to to how we understand Schmidt and the inheritance from him. So I apologize for the wall of text. I use some wall of text in this talk. uh, But I try to highlight what I'm after um, I guess that people who read Foucault know Wendy Brown, the political theorist. This is a, a talk she gave in the summer of 2017 in Berlin. I don't remember the institution, but it's online. Uh, I'll, I'll post a link in the to this text um, in the on the page Facebook page for the event if you want me to, but. I I found this this uh, talk on apocalyptic populism sort of affirming my my feeling that uh, there's an apocalyptic mood or something like that running through politics especially since 2016 which is of course her big takeaway in this quote here and she talks about apocalyptic populism as an idea that is um central to what is happening. Uh, I think that she means a specific type of uh, right-wing populism that she associates here with Brexiteers and some Trump voters um, who are, as she writes, driven by nihilism and despair. And she identifies their, their opposition to what she calls... Uh, the future uh, that has to do with their, their recent amount towards the end of white male rule, um, and her idea is that what fuels this sort of right wing populism is the is the the preparation for or or being prepared for taking the world with them, so to speak, as their domination comes to an end. If we can't rule the world uh, as white male hegemons, basically, I guess, um, then the world might as well end. Uh, I see some problems with this framing of of the issue. Uh, And one of them is... Of course, that she... Um, I think she she sort of misrepresents the apocalyptic mood somehow. Um, partly because I think that somebody um, who... Well, the apocalypse is obviously a theme in Hillary Clinton's rhetoric as well, to start with. And then you have perhaps, I'd say, that... What these people, right-wing populists that Brown attacks here, are really saying isn't that they regret the or they fear the end of white male rule, uh, just for the heck of it, so to speak, but as they see it, uh, there will be no, there won't be a world left. That the point of understanding, I think, what what the Brown calls apocalyptic populism isn't that these people want to bring the apocalypse about. What they want to do is stop the apocalypse from happening. In their eyes, what is happening is that the order of the world is breaking down, and thereby the world as such is breaking down. So just to get another understanding of, of what apocalyptic populism would mean. Uh, now, there is a tradition in understanding, some or or postulating some sort of relationship between what we could call apocalypticism and populism, I recently read Richard Hofstadter's classic study on the paranoid style in American populism, in uh, uh, American politics, <coughs> which is a case study which uh, includes uh, the original American populists. Uh, I don't know if you've read this text. It's it's very debated and it's quite controversial, of course. Uh, also, his his book, which uh, which deals with American populists, is also quite uh, controversial or or questioned within the field of history these days. Uh, but still, his he was extremely influential in the 1960s, and. Um, he identified the paranoid rhetoric of the American populists with a sort of, not only a paranoid style, but an attention to catastrophe or or fear of catastrophe and uh, a sort of apocalyptic. The paranoid style is partly an apocalyptic style, so to speak. Um, Very caught up on on catastrophe or fear of catastrophe. Uh, in a note, Richard Hofstadter refers to Norman Cohn who might be a name that some of you know of. He was a British historian, I think, uh, of religion. Uh, and this book, The Pursuit of the Millennium, from 1957. Cohn's uh, book is a work on the socio-psychological form- formation of medieval millenarian movements and his- heretic sects. Um, and the Point of these millenarian movements from from the high Middle Ages up until the reform age of the reformation, which is the focus of study in Kohn's book, is that they they really wanted to bring the apocalypse about. They had they wanted to bring the millennium about and the end of history and to enter into the thousand year ra- uh, Reich. I say, but, but uh, um, the thousand year. Um, my German tricks me here, um, but the the <laughs> kingdom, kingdom. the kingdom, the kingdom. Thank you. Uh, and um, so Hofstadter refers to Cohen's thesis to to make his point that basically the the American populists were. M- were sort of millenarians or at least affected by the same kind of, of utopian uh, um, revolutionary tendency. Uh, in short, that they were seeing their own times in the light of some sort of salvation history and that redemption and, and uh, intervention on behalf of, uh, of uh, uh, some in defense of christianity or or uh, the good people or whatever definition you use for for this would um, would be uh, an um, well sort of the use um, a secular idiom that is the same that, that represents the same sort of structure as the old religious idiom to use Cohn's terms uh, the point is that Kohn um, draws some conclusions about uh, already before Hofstadter relates to him about m- this secular modern one, uh, the secular um, idiom that has replaced the uh, that now expresses the same psycho psychological or social structure that m- millenarianism once represented. Um, it's uh, it comes to the fore in, in modern totalitarian movements, that is Cohn's point. Uh, and this idea about, about um, modern totalitarian and radical ideologies as expressions of a, an underlying um an underlying structure that is a political uh, a politicized religion, uh, or ersatz religion, uh, substitute substitute religion, um, is also known from from uh, um, authors contemporary with Hofstadter and Norman Kohn as Eric Fergelin uh, who was also a, a philosopher who was also working in the United States during this time, but had a background in from Austria and and Germany, um, with the same generation as, as these two writers. Um, and his work expresses sort of the same idea as Cohen that there is uh, an undercurrent uh, uh, religious structure or uh, what was once a religious structure, now secular, that, that courses through radical politics that is oriented towards the eschaton, the end of days, uh, of um, and that is a sort of secularized millenarianism or apocalypticism. Um, and uh, what's interesting about this idea, this sort of forms a, a paradigm of understanding uh, radical politics during during uh, the nineteen fifties, in particular, and the nineteen sixties. Uh, one could one could also mention a German philosopher, Euro- Jewish German philosopher, by the name of Karl Löwith, who wrote a book called *The Meaning of History*, which was published in nineteen forty nine, which I will get into later, but uh, who expresses something of the same idea. Um, and all of these thinkers see. What they see is that behind ideas of a certain form of progressiveness, um, as in Bolshevism or, or uh, uh, certain strands of, of Marxism, or all kinds of Marxism, if they are more radical, uh, and in Nazism and Fascism and so on, uh, what they see in them are expressions of, of uh, millenarian, uh, apocalyptic um, politics uh... related to or oriented towards the eschaton um, very strong or or um, very um, it has some sort of of still paradigmatic character i would say because it sort of disappears it gets picked up during the 1990s and particularly after after 9-11, this sort of thinking re-emerges within uh, some sort of liberal-conservative sphere of thought. Uh, And my point here is that the ideas that Hofstetter picks up here, it also appears in the thinking, um, or or something like it emerges in, more without referring to him, but, but somehow in a related way of thinking, in Brown's approach to this topic. That is the point I'm trying to make. Now, I've been talking for 20 minutes, and I haven't mentioned Schmidt yet. (laughs) Uh, And the point is that this sort of paradigm, uh, from perhaps the generation after Schmidt, but close to him, should also be understood as very close to his own understanding of these issues. What's interesting, though, is that Schmitt is very seldom read as a, uh, one of the points of references within this paradigm. He's uh, rather understood as a subject of analysis for this paradigm. That is, Schmitt, because of his, fa- of his fascism or his, Nazi, his engagement with Nazism, his approval of, of Nazi rule, is understood as... Uh, not a theorist of, but an exponent of of this sort of thought. Um, So, Schmidt is rather an apocalyptician than uh, a theorist of apocalypticism, as so to say. Uh, And that is something that I want to approach here and and question a bit. Uh, So... Now, to do this, I want to go back to uh, the, the question of populism, since Schmidt appears here as an interesting point of reference. Um, there is, the, I mean, it's also, I use the term the populist movement, movement here because, to describe what the background for Hillary Clinton and for Wendy Brown but I I take that term from Chantal Mouffe and if I mention Mouffe you understand that there is a Schmittian component in the background there so what the populist moment entails is sort of a confrontation between different hegemonic forces at least that is what Chantal Mouffe says in her latest book for left populism about the times we're in and the sort of situa- situation we're living through uh, but and, and she of course is very inspired by Schmidt in her formulations about the political uh, but there is something about this that's quite interesting She, her picking up of Schmidt to, to make the point for, for populism which she doesn't do very Extensively, but he he features in a very short bit in, in her analysis. Uh, you have to know something about her to know that that she is sort of a left Schmittian. Uh, but she would get a support from the theorist of populism, Jan Werner Müller, who uh, who is a political theorist in general. who's written about other things as well, of course. But in his short book on what is populism, where he describes. This sort, this idea of of uh, a populist notion of the people, that is beyond all, uh, that's an abstract idea of the people that you can bring in together, sort of all Swedes under a notion of the Swedish people and so to speak. Uh, instead of of finding the Swedish people in uh, the its pluralist expression, you you have an abstract and ideal conception of the people and formed the notion of the will of the people or the will of the public uh, through that sort of abstract notion of, of a shared identity. Uh, he credits Schmidt with being sort of the main a main theorist behind this sort of thinking. Uh, and that would sort of perhaps explain then why, why Chantal Mouffe embraces both populism and Schmidt, so to speak but you have a, a contrarian or, or seemingly at least contrary position being formulated by Wolfgang Strick the, um, the sociologist or economic socio- sociologist Wolfgang Strick who describes the sort of state arrangement that Muth and other people attack as an expression of, um, of exactly Schmitt's state, ideal of the state so here in, in uh, Strick's uh, essay on Hermann Heller who was another uh, German state theorist from, from the same generation as Schmidt, a social democrat um, he uses uh, Heller's definition of Schmitt as an authoritarian liberal which is well, his description of an authoritarian liberal is quite close to a neoliberal, and it also u- is also used to describe the German Ordo liberals of the same generation. Um, so Streck, Streck, who has expressed some sympathies also for the sort of leftist populism that, that uh, Muff Muf embraces,, uh, would rather place Schmidt on the side of his enemy. That is the neoliberal or, neoliberal liberal authoritarian uh, arrangement that tries to circumvent democratic control of of the state and and society and sort of keep the state's interventions in the market to a minimum. Uh, the point of bringing both of these these discussions of Schmidt in relation to populism up here is to show that. Uh, it's not to say one of them is correct. The point is that both are correct in the reading of Schmidt. This poses sort of a problem for us. Schmidt is both a right wing populist and, an, and a defender of the order the liberal or neoliberal state. He, has some, he would have some point of contestation with both, but both thinkers have identified something in Schmidt. And the point of talking about Schmidt and catechonism, now after half an hour of talking, get to this point. Uh, is that this conception makes it possible to unite these seemingly contradictory elements of Schmittian thought? So, here is the man himself, the apocalyptician of the counter-revolution, to use the radical Jewish philosopher Jakob Taubes' description. Uh, I won't get into Taubes very much here, but it would also be an interesting person to discuss in this context. Uh, Schmidt was born in 1888 and died 1985 and I'm not sure how deep I'm going to should get into the details of all these works, particularly since we're getting into a complex discussion about catechonctism later, so we shouldn't take too much time. Um, but let's just say that Schmidt has been called both the crown jurist of the Third Reich and the latest classic of political thought. Now, the person who called him the latest, cl- latest classic of political thought was uh, himself quite right-wing. Um, uh, ben, Bernard Wilms, I think his name was. So I when, when we say that, we have to understand that. I would rather give someone like Michel Foucault the title of, of the latest classic, not only because... I mean, not that Schmidt doesn't deserve it, he's sort of a uh, Hobbes of the 20th century or something like that. But, I mean, there have come other classics after him. So he's not the latest classic, but he is, I would say, a classic. And one of the things that defines a classic is that he can be reread and used for new purposes and emerge in new contexts. And if that is like the definition of a classic, then Schmidt is definitely a classic. Uh, Not least since um, only the reception since 1990 could show something like that. Uh, Just looking at at, uh, Chantal Mouffe's reception in the early 1990s where he becomes sort of a theorist of the post-political and defender of the political against depoliticization of society. Then you have Agamben's reception which sort of forms the central discussion points surrounding Schmitt's work during the years after 9/11 and 2000 where the concept of sovereignty and the state of exception becomes the central features that are being discussed uh, for a while around 2010 perhaps you could see something like the schmidt of the concrete order being discussed i will also get into how to think about that but uh another another way of, of looking at schmidt and the uh basically Rotating around the fact that the uh, relationship between the political and the economic being a central issue after two thousand and eight uh, and finally in the in the years well you you had some sort of of new um, Schmittian Schmidtian readings of the of, of um, cons- Regarding the concept of constitutive power, following the Arab Spring in two thousand and eleven, and those sort of revolution, um, revolutions, uh, the s- movements towards the squares, you know, Syntagma and and Plaza de Sol in Madrid and so on. Uh, but you have the the new movements emerging after two thousand and eight, uh, and then you have the populist Schmidt, of course, that has been the the sketching point in the. Last few years. So you have a lot of Schmidt's going about. Um, and I mean, I just getting into this um, would perhaps take too much time, but I mean, two of the most famous aspects of Schmidt's thought is, of course, his definition of the political as related to the distinction between friend and enemy, the unterscheidung uh, between friend and enemy where he makes a central point that is that it, the definition of the enemy or or the enemy shouldn't be misunderstood as naming somebody as evil or ugly or an economic com- competitor or something like that. Uh, the point of the very specific definition of the enemy is that the enemy is simply the other uh, Our antagonists that we need to confront, uh, that this is an existential relation, but that it just because it's an existential relation also risks spilling into all these other spheres. And what Schmidt wants to do is to separate the political from the ethical and not getting it mixed up with sort of uh, normative. normative considerations that are central to liberal politics, for instance. So the point would be to not understand uh, the enemy as someone who has low morals or something like that, but simply as an antagonist to be confronted and possibly killed in a a confrontation. Um, But he wants to avoid what he sees as a modern tendency towards absolute or total enmity where the enemy is denied the status even as being a human or at least as uh, a um, figure of equal legal standing which is something that he sees as prominent in modern international law for instance this discrimination of the vanquished enemy is, is as he puts it the a central problem of modern warfare um, and, and which leads to dehumanization, which is kind of strange coming from a person who supported perhaps the most dehumanizing political project of modern Europe. But there you go. It's it's complex. Um, Or maybe didn't heed his own advice. This is an open question that we could discuss later. Um, But you have also, which is, I think, the second most famous uh, definition of Schmitz, which is the definition of um, sovereignty, or the sovereign, which opens a book called Politische Theologie from 1922, which is a book that I've read, I think it's the book I m- I've read most times at all, actually, since my dissertation deals with this very thin volume, but it's a very hard book to, to really understand the finer points of. Uh, this, book's sto- this book starts with the following uh, declaration. Sovereign is he who decides an exception. And Schmitt's, what Schmidt works out during the, the, these few pages is a definition of sovereignty that, that connects it to the state of exception. And that tries to define the foundation for legal order in the idea of order to begin with. So uh, to have legal order requires that we have social order, or order at all. Uh, and to guarantee this, we need some sort of a supreme authority who controls the principle of order and decides when this order is too threatened to be, uh, to be upheld as a legal order. So order comes first and only di- thereafter is, is there legality. So um, this means that we need a strong sovereign force that guarantees social order. Uh, This wasn't an abstract problem in in Germany in 1922. The Weimar Constitution was just about three years old, less than three years old when he wrote the book. Uh, And, uh, of course, the Weimar Republic was was very much... uh, Let's just say it was an abstract question. Who held the supreme authority, deciding on on these state of exception or exceptional measures and so on? Uh, and this sort of theorizing, legal theorizing, made him his made him his name. And as you can see, he held really prominent positions all through this this time, and um, also uh, he, his. Uh, Joining the Nazi movement in 1933, he also got some very influential positions um within the field of politics and also as a, a leader of the Nazi um jurist organization. Uh, I think. Uh, and uh, he um so he made sort of a name of himself, himself. hence the crown jurist of the Third Reich. This period only lasted up up until 1936, which has been an important point for apologists, both himself and others, who tried to make his crimes less um, disturbing, or however one wants to put it. Uh, However, it should be remembered that he was, uh, he not only defended the extraordinary measures uh, around the Night of the Long Knives in 1934, when some of his former col- conservative colleagues were murdered by the Nazis. He also defended the Nuremberg laws, uh, the racial laws that, that made life quite difficult for, for German Jews. Uh, and he was an open anti Semite, and he never recanted that. Um, so. Um, this is one of the things that makes him uh, a difficult character and who deserves his uh, his his bad reputation if you if you ask me for my my uh, opinion about this but still i think it's uh, the, the problem for me is that i still find him very fascinating and some of his thoughts are, are very both useful and succinct uh, one of these is, of course, the idea of political theology, which is what I will get into now. If you want to go back to discuss my my view of his general thought, I, I have a lot of notes with me here today, and I, I've read most of his work, or all of his work, so I, I can try to answer some of your questions, but I think that um, we should move on so I can sort of explain what I'm, trying to get at with this whole political religion thing. Now, this is from the beginning of the third chapter of Politische Theologie. The first chapter starts with with the connection of of, um, sovereignty to the state of exception. And Schmidt starts out the third chapter of Political Theology by stating that all significant concepts of the modern theory, theory of the state are secularized theological concepts, not only because of their historical development, but also because of their systematic structure, the recognition of which is necessary for a sociological consideration of these concepts. And here comes the explanation for how this chapter connects with the first chapter that is about the definition of, of sovereignty. The exception in jurisprudence is analogous to the miracle in theology. Uh, the observation here is that the miracle in theology occupies a position outside of of the order of creation. So the exception, um, or the miracle, is an exception to order. And of course, ex- the exception in the state of exception is also an exception of order. So. What what Schmidt tries to show here is that there is uh, an historical and uh, metaphysical, as he would say it, uh, or as he would say, um, connection between the exception of jurisprudence and the miracle of theology. Now, this of course sounds rather uh, far fetched, but one of the points about the his Discu- discussing secularization here as an historical development points towards the idea that that theology and jurisprudence weren't as separated as they are today when these ideas were formulated so when the sover- sovereignty as a modern doctrine was being formulated in the 17th century A lot of the the philosophers, theologians, and uh, jurists who were working on that, the distinction isn't always clear between who did what, Uh, they were also concerned with the question of the miracle. So there is a connection between the metaphysics and the political here that doesn't respect the sort sort of boundaries that modern legal positivism puts up. And one of the points of recognizing this is that, of course, when it comes to both theology and jurisprudence, thinking isn't in the abstract, in the, w- I- in the way that uh, for we are used to thinking about political philosophy or something like that. It's not a mere suggestion about how to order reality. Juridical concepts directly order reality. So there's a relationship between this understanding of how to formulate sovereignty and how f- sovereignty is formulated within the fields of public and international law. Now, this is sort of my exp- ex- explanation of what Schmidt is trying to get at here, that uh, he has some sort of idealist, institutionalist theory that that is being brought forward in this in this chapter, it doesn't come out and say it in those accessible terms, of course. And this has been a point of contestation in the reception of Schmitt. Um, of course, when you've, when you've sort of come across him in, in the reception among Foucauldians, they treat him as a political theorist. But a very strong reception also treats Schmidt as a very theologically informed uh, author and thinker. Um, uh, up to the point that people say that it's not the politics, but the theology that, it's, that is at issue here. That's the central point. Schmidt being an authoritarian Catholic. Um, and sovereignty is Schmidt's main example in, in this book. So there isn't a lot to go on otherwise but an interesting parallel can be seen in you can shadow sort of a a discussion uh, that of his when he deals with the Weberian conception a concept of of charisma and the sort of charismatic legitimacy or charismatic leadership uh, which traces Weber's conception of of charisma through the um, German... Um, historian of law uh, Rudolf Sohm, who wrote a book about the uh, wrote a, two very thick volumes on the uh, history of church law, which where he talks about charismatic order, the charismatic order of the early churches, and informal order, uh, and what Schmidt can can show here is that that Weber. Uh, is reproducing a structure from protestant theology within his modern sociological theory which also has direct consequences for how you understand uh, things like the relationship between informal leadership and formal leadership within organizations and so on so there's uh, i wouldn't say that this explains or or makes this a viable theory of politics but it's it's relevant for um, for understanding how Schmidt's Schmidt thinks that political theology is a viable that this is a viable field for understanding what what um can be done with this sort of analysis so one thing i 've been working with is then the question of how how the political relates to the theological and schmidt 's work and, and one of the things i 've been trying to reconstruct there is a sort of in between position that doesn 't say that either dominates, but along the lines being proposed here is that uh there is an, there's an historical understanding of what of how these fields of jurisprudence and uh, political thought and theology are are constructed in a sort of space of relationship or, or or in a paradigm paradigm where they are closely related to each other and and this paradigm uh, also doesn 't really i mean given the fact that there is an historical development it it this has uh, through his, their historical development, of course, these relationships changes change, but this underlines Schmidt's point that modern uh, political thinking really has trouble understanding the concept of sovereignty and its relationship to the exceptional uh, and exceptional politics, since they don't have this shared... Uh, paragmatic uniting uh, uh, field in, in vision when they try to, to conceptualize sovereignty um, and I think that this is a point that is worth of note now um, to Schmidt, of course this is a problem because a faulty understanding of, of uh, sovereignty would lead to a faulty understanding of uh, of uh, juridical and political order and hence lead potentially to chaos which is what he thinks has happened. Uh, And that leads us up to the idea of the Catechon. So I'll skip a few frames here uh, to the Catechon so uh, that I at least introduce this concept to you. This is from the Bible, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. um, And... Now I forget what translation this is, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, The catechon is that which restrains here. You can see the catechon is a very mysterious figure uh, from Paul's letters. Now, modern modern, uh, exegetes uh, are... I think Ewell, our friend, said that they are like 80% of them are sure that Paul didn't write this letter, but it's a, a pseudo in Paulinian text, I think is the term. So it's attributed to Paul, but it's probably not by him. It's directed to the congregation in Thessalonia, where a, it, it's very much about the, about trying to tone them down in their eschatological fervor. The, the message in this letter is that Christ isn't, isn't necessarily coming back during their own lifetime, so they have to prepare for the long haul. But this figure of the catechon, uh, which sort of disappears uh, into some sort of ordinary language formulations, uh, if you don't if you don't know the figure as such, that which is restraining. Or he who now restrains it it, emerged, it, it is present both as an uh, objective or anonymous force and as a person him he who now restrains um, it is a, so it, it's a already saint augustine had problems with this passage he he wrote that it, this is here paul is too obscure for us we don't know what it means. But other church fathers were quite sure that this is a passage about the Roman Empire. Tertullian and Jerome, for instance, are very clear on this. Uh, to them, what is restraining is the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor, which would sort of explain the, both the gender-neutral and uh, him apart. Uh, and what is being restrained or held at bay, the lawless one, that is of course antichrist who will come before the end of days and and sort of announce that that the end of time has begun Uh, so what we confront here is is that there is an objective force within the world that restrains the lawlessness and the the lawless one uh the mystery of lawlessness um, and that the Lord with His coming, with the brightness of His coming, will, will and the breath of His mouth will destroy this Antichrist. But of course, before the Antichrist can come or arrive, we need uh, the restraining force will have to to uh, be put aside. Um, this text then takes on a continued... uh, uh, It's received by, first of all, um, it's identified with the Roman Empire, and of course when the Roman Empire becomes Christian it becomes even more um, even more of a a self-evident fact for Christians. Uh, Then when... uh, the, the tradition of the Roman Empire becomes a problem for, for Western powers uh, when they have to sort of argue for the continued existence of this political structure with the Carolinian Renaissance in the 9th century, 8th, 9th century. This becomes an object of, uh, of ideological, to use a modern term, identification. That is, that the Carolinians and the Ottonians and... Uh, all those lineages tried to to claim the title of being this sort of imperial catacomb who defends and uphold, who who defeats or uh, holds the antichrist at bay and who who uh, restrains the lawlessness to to uphold creation now of course this is a, to me as an um, secular observer it sounds like a bizarre temporal structure because um, wouldn't you want the eschaton and the final days to arrive but um, there is something about this structure that sort of invites to I mean as a Christian you are forbidden to do the works of the devil so to anyway help the antichrist would be to, to undermine your relationship to God something like that and this means that it's important to uphold creation in this way to continuously support the restraining power of course uh, for some reason this ideological identification of the emperor with uh, with the catechon loses force during the high middle ages and uh, is undone with the War of Reformation, Wars of Reformation, and also Calvin has a different reading of of what the catechon is. Basically, he sort of transposes it to the to the churches and their preaching of the Holy Word. Uh, but um, what does this have to do with Karl Schmidt? You might ask. Well, this is from Schmidt's post-war diaries. Uh, from 1947, where he proclaims the first part of the quote is, is quite important because for all his interest in theology and all his or all all the text where he argues for the importance of being uh, of of um, theological reason in within political thought. He really seldom uses the word Glaube. Religion isn't about belief. It's about a form of reason or understanding. Created order or something like that. It's not about what what you feel. It might be about confession. But certainly not very much about belief. So it's quite astonishing. That he actually proclaims a belief in the Catechon. Glaube. Glaube and in Catechon. Uh, it is for me the only possibility as a Christian to understand history and find it meaningful. We have to be able to name the Catecon for every epoch in the last nineteen forty-eight years. The place has never been unoccupied, otherwise we would not be present anymore. And there are or may be temporary transient splinter-like fragmentary bears of this role. Uh, important to note is that Schmidt doesn't really use the word this concept before the nineteen forties and he starts using it around towards the end of the Second World War uh, and take an interest in it. Uh, he uses it quite quite a number of times during uh, around the year nineteen fifty. And I think that he doesn't really use it at all or very much, at least not in his in his um, public writing after the year nineteen fifty-seven, I think is there. So, so there is there is this period from the mid nineteen forties to the mid nineteen fifties when he is very caught up on this term. Uh, and within the reception of Schmidt's political theology, this concept has taken on a very specific uh, or, or central position because it's it's taken to describe uh, the important structure of, of all his thinking, uh, or, or to, to be sort of a uniting concept for his, the whole of his political thought, or his juridical thought, and, to, to, and taken as a description of his view of, this, of the role of the sovereign, and thereby also what what his line of thinking is is centrally about. Um, And the what what happens around this time as well is that Schmidt takes an interest in widening his discussion about uh, modern political Modern, modern, uh, modern political concepts and the theological roots to also contain the idea of history. And it connects to the Karl Lovett that I discussed earlier. Let's see here. Uh, particularly in, uh, in a short essay called Three Possibilities for a Christian Conception of History. Of course, it isn't called that. It's called Drei Möglichkeiten, Einen Christlichen Geschichtbildes. <laughs> Uh, but this is how it's translated in English. Published in nineteen fifty, it's one of the first texts that he texts that he can publish uh, after being uh, allowed, well, into the public sphere yet again after after nineteen forty-five. Um, and in this text, he he reviews Karl Lovitz, uh, newly published meaning in history. It only emerges in in a German translation by. Among others, um, the German historian Reinhard Koselleck, by the way, translates that. Uh, um, and uh, to to Heilsgeschichte und Weltgeschichte und Heilsgeschichte is the title. That is, uh, world history and uh, salvation, oh, world history and, and the process of salvation or something like that, which contains a reading of of um, of modern philosophies of history and and uh, uh, thought of progress or modern progressivism that we might call it in the terms uh, in terms quite reminiscent of Schmitt, though love it, hated Schmitt, and wouldn't be wouldn't acknowledge the the relation between between these lines of thinking, but what love it to make. A, not very long but still complex line of thought Uh, um, to to, to summarize it shortly he he claims that modern philosophies of history are a secularization of the Christian uh, Christian idea of salvation but it's being uh, put into the uh, but applied to imminent reality so what emerges here is, is uh, an image of how a line of thinking unites St. Augustine with Joachim de Fiore in the in the 13th, 12th or 13th century, with um, Hegel in, in the 19th century, and finally with Mar- Marx, uh, stopping along the way in, uh, at, at some points. And the point for Lovett is to show that there is... a uh, a sort of a utopian longing for the fulfillment of history that is that can be seen here, and that Marx uh, is sort of a symbol of of where this idea of spirit's fulfillment through the history, you know, this from from Hegelian philosophy of history, uh, drops the spiritual aspect and and becomes applicable to the imminent laws of creation that's, uh, or or of the world, losing its. Uh, theological um, shell or, or roots and and being applied to imminent reality in itself and also making the fulfillment of history and, and salvation uh, something placed within human hands within history itself. Of course, Löwitt was quite conservative and uh, to return to Jürgen Habermas called him a stoic philosopher. So to to love it, uh, this idea of a uh, uh, of human fulfillment uh, as a human a possibility for human action, was uh, a very dangerous idea. And uh, he to him this is the sort of utopianism that went into both the Bolshevik uh, or or radical communist pro- projects, but also into the Nazi projects. Uh, so. To, to Löwit there is a very close connection between ideals regarding the perfect ability of, of, of man in different kinds, uniting them to a, to, to a common form of, of, of philosophy. Uh, Schmidt combines Löwit with uh, some other thinkers. I won't go into them now, but but rather return to the idea of the catechon. Uh, and in he agrees with Lovett in almost all details. However, he has a small addition and it concerns the possibility of a Christian conception of history. Because within Lovett's scheme there would be no real possibility of of being a a Christian within this frame because Christianity or a a modern understanding of history has replaced Christianity. Of course, there can be Christians, but they can't Tend to the same structure of, of history as, as the modern utopianists do. But Schmidt me Schmidt, by also by using the works of Freyer and Weiss uh, and the sort of figures that, that they present, uh, he he envis- he tries to envision how a Christian counter myth to these modern myths of history uh, could be developed. And at the heart of it, he places the idea of the catechon against the utopian longings of all of these apocalypticians of modernity. You could see, um, Schmidt says, uh, this sort of restrainer who, who tries to put the emerging lawlessness of the utopian reign with a charismatic leadership um, uh, in check to to um, stop the revolutionising uh, of and overthrowing of all established tradition and institutions and thereby save p- political uh, and public order and social order um, so here is where schmidt 's katakontism is is visible his own identification of his own sort of Christian um, Christian um, frame of reference to a political logic that would be uh, possible to to establish as a mythical institutional ideal within uh, a modern setting and establishing principles for ordering society Uh, so the catechon is sort of his ideal for for his own work what what it's supposed to do Um, so to return to the questions that I started with uh, Schmitt there is obviously something to Striek's reading of Schmitt I would say uh, the fact that he uh, has the idea that that uh, order must be upheld, he also has a clear idea that the revolutionary movements of the twentieth century, particularly uh, anarchist and and um, um, uh, revolutionary ones, are are uh, a threat to. To uh, mankind uh, he also has this this uh, aversion to certain forms of, of liberalism, which is quite obvious and what is most famous for uh, since not least because their their ambition to limit the actions of the sovereign uh, but he also has this um, idea of uh, uh, i mean in in what might appear as as, uh, a surprising move, he embraces an ideal of democracy uh, within his uh, Weimar period writings. However it's a sort of democracy that we wouldn't be uh, wouldn't associate with with the concept of democracy today. Uh, It's more of an illiberal democratic ideal uh, along the lines of what Miller describes. So against both Miller or, or the, the proper image of Schmittian politics, I would say is what emerges when you, you bring Miller and Strick together in their identification of, of Schmitt and the Schmitt the authoritarian and Schmitt the populist. Um, now many of these populist movements are, of course, quite authoritarian, but the point here being that the sort of insulation of of, uh, established capitalist social order uh, from public control or or government intervention is one of the features of of Schmitt's uh, thinking, after all. Um, And this is where Schmitt's catechontism and... uh, Uh, his political theology shows its true face as an avertive apocalypticism I would say where the point is to restrain the social forces that are tearing at the social order as it is and defend the social order against forces uh, tending towards chaos Uh, and I have in an essay that is uh, under review now for uh an anthology, I've I've discussed this in terms of a catacombic democratic idea. Uh that is an idea that that tries to uphold um the the sort of uh, institutionalized democracy as it is and Avert the apocalyptic longings. tries to to confront it. Now I'm not doing this sort of a political theoretical work. Trying to put forward this is an ideal. I want to say that this is a problem of, uh, and it's a problem of our age, and it is a problem of of uh, central with Sh- central to Schmitt's thinking, the sort of. Uh, uh, embrace of order as such, and the impossibility or difficulty to imagine uh, an alternative. Uh, so I, I want to suggest then that Schmidt, the catechontic catacom- the thinker, talks to our populist, mo- mo- populist moment uh, in a more profound way than it might be envisioned if we simply identify him with the sort of right-wing <coughs> populists, or simply with the um authoritarian liberal technocratic rule that that's striking him with rather he represents a broader he he can represent a broader tendency towards catacontism that we are facing now where necessary changes are being stalled or averted uh in the we, in the face of a fear of the apocalypse um I'm not really ready to stand here at the University of Lund and, and, and uh, bring on some sort of slogans regarding the immanentization of the eschaton or something like that to, talk, to, to correspond with Fergelin. But I think it's a testament to the problems of our age that this sort of Schmittian structure appears as so, to me at least... Um, recognizable in the politics of the present and with those words I think I'll end and I'm sorry for going on for so long, thank you